Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Welcome to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields, as always, the founder of the Jew3 Project, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Cameron Triggs. Hey, Cam. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? It's going good. I'm really excited about our guest, um, Dr. Carl Ellis. Welcome, Dr. Ellis. Hey, good to be here. Good to be here. Awesome. For those who don't know who you are, can you give a little bit of background about yourself? Well, I've been around for a few years. Uh, uh, graduate of uh, Hampton uh, down in uh, in Virginia and uh, HBCU, of course, and then uh, did my master's at Westminster Theological Seminary and then my doctorate at Oxford Graduate School. And then I'm I married. I got a couple of kids, enjoying life, um, etc. And I just love. Uh, I love mentoring younger black men. I do. That's my that's the, that's my heart. That's awesome. That that that's you know that that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I and I absolutely love being a dad. Okay, I, that's been one of the greatest uh, the greatest things that God has given me to do. Well, Doctor Ellis, we're grateful to have you. Um, you're. Uh, a legend of sorts. You're uh, been around doing apologetics, just contributing to the church with your scholarship. And uh, we're looking forward to our discussion. I'm going to go ahead and start with our first question um, that's kind of relevant to some of the headlines we see today. Um, How should black evangelicals engage in social justice issues? Well, social justice is uh, part and parcel of the gospel, actually. Um, you know, you know, you got, you got two aspects. I mean, we should we should be about preaching and practicing righteousness, right? Mm-hmm. But, well, too often our righteousness uh, has been nothing but piety. You know, doing our devotions and going to church, that kind of thing. But there's another side to righteousness, and that is justice. Okay, those those two go together. Now, these are very these are things that are very near and dear to the heart of God, especially when you read the Bible. And then, uh, and then you have the personal dimension of, uh, of of righteousness, and then you have the social dimension. So you got personal uh, piety, social piety, uh, personal justice, social justice. And the problem the problem is that evangelical theology uh, has been inadequate in addressing the social dimension and the justice dimension, and the reason for that is because evangelical theology grew in the context of the dominant culture. And when you're in the dominant culture, you don't think about oppression and things like that, because you're on the top of the heap, you know? You don't think about uh, the injustices of the system, because the system, in any society, the system gives its best to the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And the subdominant culture does not nearly get the benefits as much as the dominant culture. So, So evangelical theology, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm in agreement with evangelical theology in that it accepts the, the Bible as the inspired and the uh, infallible Word of God and all that. But the problem with evangelical theology is that it, it has only scratched the surface about the richness and the wisdom that we can find in Scripture. 
there's a whole lot more theology to be done. Just like with apologetics, there's a whole lot more apologetics that, that can be done. So, mm-hmm. uh, so my problem with evangelical theology is that the tendency is, among a lot of evangelicals, is to think that all theology that can be done has been done. That's just rather arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So anyway, that's... Uh, so yes, we should participate, but the problem, our problem is because we don't have a good theology, we don't have a robust enough theology that covers the social justice issue, what, what ends up happening, what ends up happening is that we end up, um, um, we end up um, taking our cues from other people who don't have access to the wisdom of God, namely the Word, and so they come up with these uh, these uh, less than uh, accurate analyses of our situation, or let's put it this way, uh, analysis of our situation based on half blindness. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so we go along with that. We want to. We want to. We want to be relevant, as it were. But what happens is that we let non-Christians decide what our options are. Well, you know, only God decides what our options are. And so, uh, so we end up. Uh, kind of being like second-class citizens, also runs uh, being the tail on the dog instead of being the head. You know, so we we as Christians should have a much more robust response to uh, issues of oppression and things like that because we have access to the wisdom of God. You know, but we're not we're not doing that. We are taking our cues from from people who do not have access to the, to, to the wisdom of God. So yes, we should participate, but on our own terms. That's I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think that's very um, important because I see so many um, who have a disdain for um, African Americans who have a disdain for evangelicalism because um, the absence of them dealing with social justice issues. So you're yeah, right; it pushes them to the yeah. other extreme, and then the other extreme. <laughs> takes them away from the gospel and the authority of scripture. And so it becomes this, I can't, since I can't, you, you know, the whole idea of if does your orthopraxy match your orthodoxy. And in a lot of ways, right. evangelicalism has lacked in the orthopraxy part. So absolutely. And, it, and, 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 and therefore it is, uh, it is inadequate. Mm-hmm. You know, evangelicalism does not have the robustness that we need today in the African American context because it wasn't it wasn't designed or you know developed with us in mind. Very true. And I say that as an evangelical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In what ways can our cultural context influence our hermeneutics and theology? Our cultural context gives us questions to go to God for with, okay? You know, like, my situation, my context, the whole reason that I'm in my context is, well, is so that I can be a witness to God in it, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to be a witness to God in it, I need to understand it. I need to, to make sense of my context from God's point of view. And so my, my cultural context then gives me questions that I take to Scripture. I mean, I go to the... Uh, you know, I, I, I'll ask God, well, God, how come so-and-so and so-and-so is the case? Or why, what about this? And I go to the Scripture and, and read, and, and, you know, and the Scripture is so rich. 
that the first thing the scripture does is that it corrects my question, because most of the time, 99.9% of the times, I, I have the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the scripture is profitable for reproof and correction and all the rest of that. So the scripture then gives me the correct question. Like, for example, in the early days of black consciousness, when I was at, uh, at Hampton, um, you know, the question that came to me was, what does Jesus have to do with the black revolution, you know, the black cultural revolution? <clears throat> and it was a, it was a legitimate question, you know, of course I went, as I said before, I went, to, I went to my nearest Christian bookstore to get some stuff on it and I found nothing, you know, and back in those days, I kind of had, I kind of swallowed the, the Kool-Aid, uh, uh, say, that, that said that, uh, only, uh, only Paul's letters applied to, you know, only the Paul's letters apply to us. All the rest of the scriptures for another time and all the rest of that. And I had mm. bought into that silliness, you know. And uh, and Paul wasn't helping me, you know. When, when when I was trying to debate a, you know, a militant, a black militant on the corner, I mean, Paul wasn't helping me. I love Paul. Don't get me wrong. I love Paul. I love the letters. But he just wasn't helping me. So what I did, I did a Hail, Hail Mary pass. I started reading the Bible from Genesis 1. <laughs> And when I got up around the prophets, I said, oh, that's what the militants are arguing about, because what were the prophets talking about? Justice, oppression, uh, those kind of things, compassion for the poor, those kind of things. And uh, that's exactly what the militants were, were discussing. So I just dropped my, my, my theology. I just took it to the nearest dumpster and just got rid of it. You know, I said, I'm going to start with the Bible. Whatever the Bible says, that's what I'm going to believe. And I'm going to be open to being like uh, rebooted, as it were, theologically from the Bible, and it made all the difference in the world. And mm-hmm. so um, and that's what began to make me realize that the, 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 the theology we have is inadequate. So we, what we need to do then is that we need to we need to study uh, the you know we need to look at our cultural context and take and and and, and go to the scripture with questions that it gives us in tow. Now, once God corrects the, the the question, then He'll answer the question through Scripture or you know, whatever. Then you come back to your situation and you apply that answer, and it's it's the most remarkable thing. When I I started doing that, and I'd go back to these guys that would argue with me and say the Christianity is a white man's religion and all that, I'd lay on them the, the wisdom that God gave me, and it would, it would kind of blow them away. Mm. But as I began to apply the things that God showed me, new questions would pop up, which I'd go back to the Scripture, get re, uh, get uh, corrected, and then answered, and come back to the situation. So it was an ongoing cycle. And basically what I ended up doing, and I didn't realize it at the time, I ended up doing theology in an urban, in an, an African-American, an HBCU context. Uh, in that con- in that culture, and I've learned how to do that in whatever culture I'm in. I, I go through that same thing. I actually do theology. That is, by theology, I mean applying God's word to every area of life. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you see, theology is something that we should do, not just study. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so I end up I ended up doing some pretty good theology, and it really made some impact on some. Uh, some guys. It's interesting. A lot of these guys who are most vehemently opposed to to my faith. Many years later, I, I would run into them, and they they'd be pastors or deacons or so, or something like that. And here they were yelling in my face, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion, and all the rest of that. But 
I like to think that God uh, gave me some uh, gave me some wisdom on that, and that God used me partly to reach them. So yeah, that's what we should study our our, our context. We should uh, we should we should and see. The problem is if we take our cues from the traditional evangelical uh, uh, parameters or the scope of traditional evangelical theology, it does not take into consideration the kind of things that we're dealing with. You know, where 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 is the theology that that addresses Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we can we can do theology, of course. Black Lives Matter because black people are in the image of God and all that. But see, that gives us a question, though, to ask these Black Lives Matter folks and say, uh, why do Black Lives Matter? Why? You know, do you have a basis for that? And of course, they would say, ah, that's just the white man stuff. Blah blah blah. But the point is, I know that Black Lives Matter because I have a solid reason. It's because it's uh, because we're in the image of God, and that is one of the most, that's the loftiest statement about human dignity there is to be found anywhere in the world, mm. that human beings are in the image of God. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot in Scripture that, uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot in, in the Bible that God uh, is ready to tell us. The thing is, we're, you know what it is? I, I, I say this a lot. We find ourselves on theological welfare. We're all, we're dependent <laughs> on other people to do our theology for us, when we should be doing our own. Wow, <laughs> that is a good term. We might have to uh, steal that from you, Doctor Ellis. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. Well, see, when you think about it, you know that that was the whole problem of the Reformation. People got uh, tired of being on theological welfare to the priest. You know. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. Dr. Ellis, I'm going to uh, turn the corner and ask uh, a specific question. Kind of relates to the one we just asked you. Um, there's a okay. book uh, amongst African American scholars, many of them know, um, by William R. Jones. Uh, it's got a white racist. Um, yeah. And he kind of critiques, you know, the seemingly disproportionate suffering of minorities, and he critiques Black liberation theology. And I know you've written on this and you've thought about it, so. I um, just want to hear your thoughts on what contributions can a historical African-American theology contribute to the problem of evil and suffering in black lives? Well, you know, we, we can't, we, we, we live our lives. Uh, we've lived our lives in the context of the subdominant culture. You know, the subdominant mm-hmm. culture experiences oppression much more than the dominant culture, you know, and uh, now just to define a couple of terms here, what is oppression? Mm-hmm. Uh, oppression is simply sin plus power. Mm. It's uh, it's it, 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 oppression happens when I impose either my sin or the consequences of my sin on someone on someone else. So that's what oppression is. So whenever you have you're in a dominant position over someone and you sin against them, then you oppress them by definition. Mm. And oppression does not, it's, it's not a racial issue at all. I mean, you know, we all do oppression one way or the other. I mean, anybody who's in a dominant position over someone else and they sin against them, they've oppressed them. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those universal human condition things, you know what I'm saying? A lot of us think that only white folks do oppression. Well, black folks can do it too, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, after all, that's the second piece. Uh, you know, not only does the Bible give us give us the, the loftiest uh, uh, statement you know, about human dignity, but it also gives us the most realistic that mm. we as human beings are fallen. We're, you know, we're we are flawed fundamentally, and that's why we need 
uh, Jesus as Savior. But going back to it, um, <clears throat> so if we do our theology from a subdominant perspective, all of a sudden a lot of Scripture will just come alive for us that we never saw before. And uh, we don't have to go off to sociologists and all the rest of that to do our theology. We can let sociology serve our theology. That's no problem with that. I, I, I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, like, for example, liberation theology, uh, my problem with liberation theology is that is is that it is not radical enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yes, you know, is liberation a concern in Scripture? Well, absolutely. You bet your bippy. Uh, the gospel can be uh, one of the major things of the gospel is liberation. I am liberated from my sin, you know, from the guilt of sin, and I'm being liberated from the power of sin, etc., that kind of thing. So liberation is certainly a part of the gospel. It's a theme of the gospel. It's a perspective of, of the gospel. But my problem with liberation theology is that they focus on liberation as the gospel. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like uh, if, I, you know, if I have a car which has wheels, uh, you know, I say, oh, I got a new set of wheels today. You know, that's what we call a uh, synecdoche, when you represent something on the basis of a part of it. Okay, so I got a new set of wheels. But if I go out and find out it's just the wheels, it's not gonna, they're not going to do me much good. i got to have the whole car, see? Mm-hmm. And so the, the biblical message is multifaceted, okay? And liberation is one of the facets. It's a very important facet. But whenever you reduce the whole biblical message to, a, to liberation, then it becomes inadequate. It is non-transformative. Okay, that's why I say it's not radical enough. I mean, if I take a if I take a, a dope pusher who's oppressed and I liberate the dope pusher and I don't do anything else, all I have is a liberated dope pusher. He's still going to be a dope pusher. Mm-hmm. That's non-transformative. My problem with liberation theology again is that they they, they say, okay, uh, God's people are the poor. You know that that there that's where where it is. Well, what happens if the poor um, start making money and become middle class? What what about that? You know, yes, it's true that people who are oppressed are more righteous than their oppressors within that relationship. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's that's observable. Oppressed people are more righteous than their oppressors oppressors within that relationship. The problem is, and and, and why is that? It's because the oppressed focus on resisting the oppression, and they focus on that. So much so that they, they kind of lose track of their own sins. They, they kind of forget that they're sinners too. And when liberation comes, and this is what happens so many times, when liberation comes, the oppressed forget that they're sinners too. And when liberation comes, their own sin comes back up to bite them. You know, it comes back with a vengeance. And then we wonder, well, what happened? You know, I mean, for example, there, there was a, I did a blog post on this uh, several, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, you know what happens when the first black family moves into a white neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the for sale signs go up, right? There's white flight, right? Mm-hmm. I used to think, oh, white folks are the only ones who did white flight. Well, in 76, I walked into a neighborhood in Philadelphia and had all these for sale signs that looked just like white flight. Only problem was I didn't see any white people. I just, it was all black. So I said, what the heck, you know? So, so what was happening is that Poor people were moving in from, a, this was a middle-class neighborhood, but poor people were moving in from another neighborhood, being displaced from, from another neighborhood, coming into the, to their neighborhood, and everybody was all upset. 
And they were using the same rhetoric that the white folks were using. Oh, our property values are going down. Our schools are going to go down. And so, therefore, white black folks are selling their homes and moving out. So I observed black flight, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, the issues were the same. The, the perception was these new people moving into the neighborhood are going to, uh, you know, bring the, the neighborhood down, bring the culture down. Well, you know. So, so it was more of a cultural clash than anything else, but it was the same thing. Um, I think that uh, uh, what we need to do is we need to take, when we do our theology, when we, when we look at these things, we've got to remember two things. One, that we're in the image of God. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the highest statement of humanity out there, but also that we are fallen. We are fundamentally flawed because of sin. That's the most realistic if we understand both of those things, that as we pursue theology, as we, we pursue uh, liberation and all the rest of that, we will have our proper balance. We get off balance when we forget one of those two truths. If we forget the fact that we're fallen and fundamentally flawed, then we will end up with tyranny. We will end up having too much faith in people, thinking, oh, this, this, this person is a good person, let's make him a dictator, and then he becomes a tyrant. Or if we slip off the other side, then we end up dehumanizing others or even ourselves because we, 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 uh, we reduce ourselves to some piece of us. It's like, uh, uh, you know, yes, I am black. I'm, I'm African-American. I'm proud of it and all the rest of that. But there's more to my humanity than my blackness. Blackness cannot, it's not a big enough uh, concept to contain all my humanity, though it is a very important aspect of my humanity. But there's other aspects of me that are that are beyond that. And so that's what you call idolatry. When you take one piece of something and you reduce everything to that one piece, and again, that's sort of my problem with liberation theology. They reduce it to that. So liberation, yes, but, it, but it's, there's more to it than that. And uh, so... I think that there's plenty of room out there for us to do things. I appreciate, you know, I appreciate the works of the liberation theologians. They, 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 they trigger, uh, you know, new thoughts and things and causes, they cause me to go to the scripture and see things. Uh, they give me new, better questions sometimes to, to go to the scripture with. So I, I do appreciate them. So my critique is based on, on appreciation for what they're trying to do. But here's the thing. To have a theology of liberation, I don't have to give up the deity of Christ, which 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 is what a lot of those guys do. I don't have to do that. I mean, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, then we're still in our sins, and what's the point of doing anything anyway? So uh, it, that's kind of a roundabout answer, but I think that should address some of the things we talked about. Yeah, that's really helpful. Very helpful. Um Dr. Ellis, uh, considering many of the movements, such as uh, certain uh, members of the Black Lives Matter movement or even um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, they are great in talking about many of the issues we face, but they don't necessarily um, believe that uh, God exists. Some of them are atheists. Some of them may be uh, Pan-Africanists. Just from your observation, what are some pros and cons of these type of movements for the black community who seem to be more human humanistic in essence. Well, here's here. Okay. Again, we go back to this fundamental flaw in human, uh, human nature. 
Um, every movement, every movement, whatever it is, will attract will attract people who are concerned about the issues, right? We know that, you know. But it will also attract Trojan horse types, people who see this as an opportunity to, or, you know, as an opportunity to, to gain power because they have a different agenda. So it's like, for example, if I wanted to push a homosexual agenda, okay, but nobody is really sympathetic, and here's a, is the civil rights movement. I can get all into that because the civil rights movement or, or the push for civil rights or black power or whatever is going to overturn the existing status quo, right? But when it overturns, when that is overturned, then I have a greater chance to seize power. All yeah. right. So, so I'm a part of it. And so I, it, I we overturn the, the, the status quo, but I seize power and then I get rid of those people who, who, who I used to fight alongside of, and now I'm I'm able to push my agenda. Let's say my let's say my whole agenda was a homosexual thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So so we have to be wise enough to recognize that every movement will attract people who are sincerely concerned, and then those who are going to be using it as a you know as a Trojan horse. We have to be very discerning about that. Well, I think one of the things that movements like uh, Black Lives Matter and all the rest of that. I mean, they are saying some things that are really true, but they're not consistent. I, I again, I you know, do I agree with the concept of Black Lives Matter? You bet I do. You know, and I'm not going to get all upset because I don't see all lives matter. I mean, because Black Lives Matter in the context in the context where Black folks are marginalized and all the rest of that. When you're marginalized, then your life doesn't matter. So. In the counter that I say, yes, Black Lives Matter. So I, I got no problem with that. But they're not consistent, though. The, the 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 official organization that claims that as their as their slogan, they're not consistent about that. Because if Black Lives do matter, then does it make a does it make that much of a difference if the killer is white or black? Does that make sense? Yes. It's like uh, you take that incident with that nine-year-old boy in Chicago. Why didn't they say anything about that? Or why wasn't anything said about that black cop about a month ago that was executed in the street in in, in New York? Um, because you know I've done some looking into their into their motives and stuff like that. They 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 push Black Lives Matter. But there are some other things on their agenda, too, that they are pushing for that I cannot go along with. And so what I end up doing is that I end up saying, okay, all right, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm fighting for Black Lives Matter, but I'm not going to necessarily come under their, under their um, leadership or whatever, because I, there's a lot of other things on their agenda that I can't go along with. But so if I'm fighting for a particular issue and they come alongside of me and therefore fighting for the same thing, I don't have a problem with that either because a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, people have common cause with other people that they disagree with on other things, you know what I'm saying? So um, I, I believe that Christians should do that. I mean, Christians should, we, we should not wait for the world to tell us what issues we should be concerned about. We should look at the world ourselves, see what's going on, and be concerned about those things and just uh, 
and take the lead, as it were, or lead our own movements. We don't we don't have to depend on anybody else um, to do to do our work for us. I mean, that's that's part of the Great Commission. Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. Unfortunately, we have we have lost the art of discipleship. We don't understand that not only can you disciple individuals, but you can also disciple whole cultures. Um, and and we must do things. We must do both. You know, we must disciple individuals so they can impact the culture, and we must impact the culture so it can impact the individual, or disciple the culture so it can impact individuals. One of the best examples of cultural discipleship I've seen in modern times was the civil rights movement. Don't people don't realize how theological it was at its very heart, at its very essence. You know, a lot of those who participated didn't even realize that. But it was very theological, and it, it, it in, in an essence, used... You know how Paul talks about the weapons we fight with are spiritual and all the rest of that? Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement tapped into that. And here we were, we, we didn't have guns and missiles and stuff like that, and yet still the whole country changed. The whole country was nudged in the direction of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that people got saved. I'm not saying we became a Christian country. <clears throat> but I'm saying is that a, a society where where racism is not a part of the law is a is a more biblical society than one that is that has racism as a part of the law. Now, are we have we arrived at the civil rights movement to accomplish paradise? No. But it made things a little bit better, a little more towards the kingdom, and that's part of what we should be doing. And uh, uh, because people, people come at, people have, look, okay, the the book of Romans tells us that that God's that 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 God reveals Himself to everybody. There's nobody on on this whole earth that doesn't know God. Okay, nobody, everybody knows God. But the issue is. Is our knowledge of God in obedience or is it in disobedience? You know, are we accepting the truth or are we suppressing the truth, as Romans 1 says? <clears throat> well, no matter how non-Christian I am and all the rest of that, God's truth is going to come come through to me. I, there's no way I can block out God's truth. And that's a fact. And so when we do discipleship of culture, we are talking about talking to people who already know God in one way or the other who already have received truth from God. And so what we have to do then is we have to identify that truth and build our presentation of the gospel around that truth that they've already received. Um, and so I, I, it's the same. You know, I, I know people in St. Louis right now who are doing a lot of work with the Black Lives Matter movement. They're, you know, they're really on the ground right there in the trenches, and they've had an incredible impact on many of the participants in the Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter movement. Why? Because, you see, Black Lives Matter, as the official organization, might have some nefarious things on their agenda along with that, but there's a lot of people of goodwill who who are fighting for that, you know what I'm saying, who are willing to, you know, who, who, are, who are concerned. And so our friends in St. Louis, being there, they're able to really help them to understand uh, in a wiser way uh, uh, what the real issue is, and they've had an incredible impact. So um, that those are the kind of things we need to permeate the society. We ought to we we ought to we ought to permeate the culture with God's truth. Not not necessarily John three sixteen, but but things that really speak to the biblical worldview. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
you, you take um, you take the, the the Star Wars phenomenon. I mean, that is that's incredible. And of course, you know, I'm going to go to see it as soon as it comes out. Mm-hmm. But it, it would have been a much better movie if it was if, if it was rooted in theism as opposed to monism or dualism. I mean, you know, it's like the force will be with you. I mean, there's some impersonal something out there, you know, but mm-hmm. it's, it, it would be more exciting. God, God will be with you. You know what I'm saying? I, mm-hmm. I don't, I can't pray to the force, you know, but because <laughs> the force is impersonal. So it would have, it would have been a much better movie, let's say, had it had a theistic uh, foundation and uh, things like that. There's things like that out there in the culture that, that we've just missed tremendous opportunities to really shape the culture. And they, these other folks, you know, you take, you take, for example, the, uh, the, in the, in the, uh, the LGBT, uh, Q, uh, group in the community in this country. They only make about 3%, 2 or 3% of the population. And yet they changed everything. They changed the law. How do they do it? They just nudged the culture in the way they want wanted it to go. They, mm-hmm. they just did, they fought the battle on the cultural level. 3%. 3% can change the whole culture. Well, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 12 guys oh, turn the world upside down. I mean, we have not even begun to explore the power and the, and the, and the resources we have at our disposal to make changes uh, to really impact societies. We're so busy focusing on private salvation, just me getting my individual ticket from hell to heaven. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. That's important. But there's so much more to the gospel than that. So, uh, yeah. Dr. Ellis, this interview has uh, been a joy. I've, I've been encouraged and challenged by um, this conversation. What um, resources would you recommend to our listeners? Um, final thoughts and how can our <laughs> listeners get in contact with you okay okay let's see i got a website called uh uh ellis perspectives my wife and i have a website ellisperspectives.com so you can get in touch with us there um uh you know i'm on facebook i'm on twitter um my facebook uh, what is it? It's just Carl Ellis Jr. I think it is. You'll see me uh, if if you see a guy wearing a shaft leather jacket uh, <laughs> on the picture in, in front of a galaxy in the background, then you know you got me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's how they can get in touch. And um, uh, resources, of course, number one is the Bible. Okay. Um, but go to the Bible with questions in tow from your own situation, you know, in your own culture, and seek to do theology. Um, uh, don't let other people... It's good. Look, I, I've benefited from studying theology that others have done. I mean, you know, that, that's good. It's because I, I, I do benefit from other, theo- you know, other people's theology. It doesn't mean that I'm on welfare, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that, uh, there's a number of books out there, I guess, Um uh, I got one that's kind of dated. I mean, you know, everybody, the, the millennials are rediscovering. It's called Free at Last, with a question mark. It was written back in 96. Matter of fact, I'm working on a new one right now. I'm just trying to get it published, uh, which is kind of the sequel to it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Chris, um, uh, Urban Apologetics. Um, Chris, Chris, 
Yes, Chris Brooks. Yeah, that's right. He, he's got a he's got it's a pretty good book. Uh, there are a number of other things out there. There are a number of other things. So um, I can't think of them off the top of my head. But number one is the scripture. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Ellis. Uh, we enjoyed yeah. this interview. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it